Hello and welcome to another episode of Your Therapist Needs Therapy. I'm your host, Jeremy Schumacher. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. And today I am joined by a local person. I love getting my Milwaukee area folks on the podcast. Today I'm joined by Laura Skinner. Laura, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Um, Laura you is uh, the owner at Navigate Wellness. A um, couple different locations. We'll, we'll get all that stuff in the show notes. Um, but uh, super excited you're here. I'm very excited to talk about some of the things that I know are coming um, in your specialties that we're going to talk about. But I always start with how'd you get into the profession? What's the history that that brought you here? Oh, this is like such a long convoluted story. But the the thing I often tell people or how I actually started was when I was like six years old. Um, So my parents were cuckoo. (laughs) Or they still are, actually. It's not changed. But they were born-again Christians. So, again, I grew up with a lot of bizarre religious stuff floating around me. Yeah, I can relate. (laughs) Yeah. Um, They later turned to Wells. (laughs) But they started off as born-again Christians. And I remember um, in the kind of church that we grew up in there, they baptized children when they were old enough to bring Jesus into their hearts. And I remember that when I was six, the pastor baptized me and they gave me a testimony. Mm-hmm. And so when I was a little girl, they said, angels would come and speak to you about other people's pains. And you would hear this, like you would be able to like communicate, like angels would come to you and talk to you about other people's pain. So now again, like as an adult, I recognize like how crazy this was. Yeah. But as a little kid, I was like, I'm going to know about people's shit. Like, I'm going to hear about people's shit. But that was, like, the first little breadcrumb I got about, like, being able to, like, connect with people and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And then there was, like, so many other stories or incidents throughout my life that, like, just guided me towards, like, I don't know, connecting with people or just, like, I don't know, listening to people, being an empathetic, you know, person, connecting with people. Um, I remember there was another (laughs) incident or event in my life where... I remember maybe being about, I don't know, 11 years old and sitting in a doctor's waiting room. And my mom had told me like consistently that this waiting room that we were sitting in was my sister's dermatologist. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay. But I was like, why are we coming every week? Like that seemed kind of strange or bizarre that we were coming every week to this dermatologist. So one day as I'm sitting out there, my mom and my sister would go into this dermatologist's office And this one day in particular, (laughs) the doctor came out of the office and he like bends down and he comes and he's like, can you come inside the office with me today? And I was kind of like weirded out by this, but I was like, okay. Mm -hmm. So he pulls me in. He starts asking me some bizarre questions. And like, I start to like realize like this guy's not a fucking dermatologist. (laughs) Like, who is he? Sure. And um, he's like asking me questions about my dad and my sister and like all this stuff. So not about your skin at all. It's not about about skin at all. And um, after he asked me a few kind of weird questions, he goes over to his bookshelf and he hands me this giant blue book, huge, heavy blue book. And I look at it and it's like, um, like the book of psychiatry. It's like this giant book of psychiatry. He hands it to me and he says, you're going to need this one day. Oh. And like, ugh. Like, what the fuck? And it comes out that my sister, who had actually been going to this dermatologist, had been going and seeing the psychiatrist for months. And my sister had always, like, had kind of mental health issues. Mm -hmm. My dad was diagnosed bipolar 1 disorder. Like, my family is, like, riddled with (laughs) mental health issues. But it was, like, this, like, moment in my life where I'm like, I'm going to be, like, called to do this working in this field and industry and stuff like that. So there's literally been, like, all these, like, weird things that have, like, led me to this. Yeah. Um, 
field in this career. Yeah. So I could go on and on and on, but those are like the two very specific stories in my life that I sure. about. <laughs> it's very specifically not how to do mentorship. Here's, here's the DSM. You're going to need it. <laughs> um, so, so what was school like for you? Like, did you go straight psychology Were you, did you know you wanted to do like therapy specifically, or was that kind of a meandering journey once you got into higher ed? That was also a meandering journey. Like I went to Mount Mary and again, that was like a weird happenstance. Like I did really like poorly in testing in school. Like I am dyslexic and I just did not do well in school academically. Yeah. And I remember my guidance counselor um, said to me in high school, like, you're not going to really make it in school. Um, so I had ended up getting this like weird scholarship um, through my grandma's I don't know, something through my grandma. And it was like, I don't know, $1,500 scholarship, which again, back then literally covered books in school. Yeah. And through this scholarship, it was like, you can go to any of these schools in, in the Milwaukee area. And one of them was Mount Mary College. And mm-hmm. they had like an interior design program. And I was always like a creative person. I did art. And that was something I was like, oh, Mount Mary, it's close by. I could go there. I could, you know, do art. So I went into Mount Mary and I started doing interior design. And I was like minoring in psychology because I still really enjoyed that. And the first year I was doing it in December of that year, um, my dad got into a really bad car accident and was in a coma. Mm -hmm. And so I go to my interior design like instructor and I ask her for more time to finish my project. And she said no. And I was like, my dad's in a coma. And I, I think she thought I was like kidding. Like it seems like a pretty like crazy thing yeah. like can I have more time in my project and she was like not compassionate at all and I decided to drop that program and just continue on with psychology or behavioral science was kind of sure. the undergrad yeah. and so again it was like this like weird like it pivot yeah. and so then I just pursued doing psychology and then just kind of kept rolling with it yeah so it was just this like like weird thing that just got me out of interior design to do therapy yeah. And now you you run your own practice. So what was that journey like getting into the field? Did you do like agency work? Were you at like a hospital or healthcare setting? Or did you like know you want to do private practice? Like I'm always curious now owning my own practice and seeing how much time I wasted in agency work. Uh, I'm, I'm curious how other people get here because I think like I don't want to say it's the gold standard, but like from a, a work-life balance, I think it's really nice to be yeah. a private practice owner. So what was that that part of your career like? Yeah, I I always like think I knew I always knew I didn't want to like work for anybody. I always knew I wanted private practice kind of I didn't know how I was going to get there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I started out, out in like Department of Corrections working for the Chapter 980 program, which is sexually uh, violent sexual violent criminals mm-hmm. um so i knew i kind of like criminal like i kind of like law enforcement and criminals so i started there as an undergrad actually as an intern and it was like kind of the first undergrad intern that was able to do that so it was kind of a really exciting thing for me yeah um then i kind of went into county work so i worked for the um county for a while did some of that work um i'm trying to think again i feel like it, i feel like i've been doing this for so long I'm like where else did i go yeah um did that. Uh, I really, I guess through working through many systems. So doing that, I did do private practice for a while, like kind of like right out of school, mm-hmm. but I, I always like found myself like not working really well in systems. Not that I couldn't work well, but I was always the one being like, this isn't working. This isn't working. Like, let's find a better way. Let's not, let's find a better way. Like I hated 50 minute sessions. I hated diagnostics. Like I, I just, everything that was like in the box, I like wanted to get out of the box kind of thing. Um, so it was through a lot of, 
<laughs> a lot of system work that I realized like I couldn't do it anymore. So in 2014 is when I um, was kind of like moonlighting basically in private practice. Like I got my own LLC and I just started like a night here, a night there, sure. a weekend kind of yeah. thing and just started slowly like building my practice. Yeah. Till I felt like confident enough that I could get enough clients to yeah. fucking leave. <laughs> yes. Very cool. Um, so you talk about being dyslexic and you and I have connected in the past about being ADHD. Um, what, what was that like, um, being in the profession? Did you have these diagnoses while you were in school kind of growing up or were these things that you kind of learned later? Like where did that fit in the timeline? I always knew I like was, I don't want to say off, but like I always knew there was something probably going on. Mm -hmm. Um, but I always like navigated it. Like I was always, I, I, I think it wasn't until, um, I think there was like this aha moment I had when I got to high school. So I grew up in Milwaukee and I went to a small Lutheran school and, um, I was always able to like, again, I, I'm like embarrassed to admit this, but I was always like able to like cheat my way out of like everything in sure. a sense like I we literally the school that I went to it was kindergarten through eighth grade was 80 kids it was so tiny and if I needed to like figure out a math or something I'd be like hey Nicholas like what did you get for number eight like I was always able to like figure stuff out yeah. through manipulation because <laughs> again I wasn't I struggled in some areas sure I was always very creative and, and everything but yeah. when it came to certain top like math and those kind of things I just really struggled mm -hmm. so when I got to high school my parents we moved from Milwaukee to um Mequon yeah. and so I had to go from that little and tiny bubble of an environment to Homestead um which those of you who are in the area will know it was like this huge culture shock and I got to high school and I was like fuck yeah like I don't know what the fuck I'm doing and I was so far behind I remember like basically having to retake so many classes because I was so far behind and like realizing like okay like there's a problem here like I have a learning disability like yeah. I had to like take pre-algebra like many times to like catch up and so that was like the first time that I was like ooh, like there's something going on here um and then throughout like again just like educating myself and like now throughout the years of like me being an adult like realizing like oh like I have some of these like things going on yeah so but again I think as humans we're really adaptable like we're so adaptable and i think that's why too like as a clinician now or as a therapist i realize like this I, i'm actually so grateful i didn't get a label when i was younger like that i think the label would have um again put me in a box and i wouldn't have figured out how to like meander through life or navigate life sure. in a sense yeah i know sometimes getting the label helps people get resources but for me personally not having a label actually like helped me figure out life in a better way yeah um or adapt in a better way. Yeah. So I think that was helpful for me. Yeah, for sure. That's that's interesting kind of as I'm reflecting on my own story because I was I did not get my diagnosis till I was in my postgrad. Mm -hmm. Which like that's useless at that not that yes. it's useless, but like, you know, I've gone through all the hard school yes. at that point. Um but I, I went into a therapist and said, like, hey, I have ADHD, I just need you to test it mm -hmm. so that I get the official diagnosis. Um, and, and that was fine. That's not at all a good way to do therapy, but, <laughs> but, uh, you know, so I knew it at that point, mm -hmm. but like, I, I look back at my private school, um, because I was also, I was raised Lutheran and, um, I do think there are things that it would have been nice to have the awareness and like, it was so apparent. I was always out of my desk. I was that kid who sharpened my pencils every hour. I was the kid who, <laughs> yes. uh, clapped chalk. Uh, the old school chalkboards and went outside and clapped the, the erasers together because you had to get the dust off of them. Probably have like emphysema or something from that in my future. Um, whatever they used for those blackboard chemicals. 
Um, I took the flag up and down every day. Like I had all these extra jobs because I was so far ahead in my work. Mm -hmm. Um, I had good grades, Mm -hmm. but like I could not sit still Mm -hmm. for eight hours. Mm -hmm. So it was was one of those things where like, I think in private school, a, they don't have to have resources. They don't have to support, um, students. They don't have to deal with an IEP. Mm -hmm. They don't have those resources available and they are not legally obligated to follow through with them, Mm -hmm. which is problematic. But, um, yeah, I, I think not having that label, you do adapt, you do learn how to get through it. Um, I was a good student and I still cheated because it was available. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> very, very easily. In, in a, a smaller school, I think maybe we had, you know, 25, 30 kids in my class. And uh-huh. I'm the youngest in my family. So I'm bad at certain things in algebra because uh-huh. one of my sisters saved one of her algebra notebooks. Uh-huh. And so a friend of mine and I just copied uh-huh. the answers. Uh-huh. And we only did the ones that they got wrong. So we got good grades. And then we failed all the tests um, because we didn't know how to do anything. So it is it is weird. I relate to a lot of that. Um, I'm curious because dyslexia and, and ADHD are both under the umbrella of neurodivergence, mm-hmm. which which I think a lot of people think um, autism spectrum and ADHD and neurodivergence. Mm-hmm. But we know dyslexia and the other um, forms of it, dysgraphia and dys. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce them all. I don't work yeah. with, with the, the learning <laughs> disabilities too much. But it's it's a processing issue mm-hmm. where your brain doesn't process the information the way that um, other typical brains might process it. Did you did those things get combined for you or were those kind of like two different things that happened in your life of like, oh, I'm dyslexic. And then at another point in your life, like, oh, I'm also ADHD. It, it kind of happened separately. So yeah. I was one of my really good friends who I've known for probably 12 years now. She was, and she's a nurse practitioner, prescriber. She was the one who kind of more pointed out the ADHD stuff or ADD stuff for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was just like, why don't you just try some medication? She's like, I, I think that this might be going on. She's like, just try it. And I was like, kind of against medication. Like I, I, was, I was like, no, like I don't want to do the med thing. She's like, just try it. Just see what happens. Just Let's just see what you notice. And I was like, fine. And so it was right after I had my first son, mm-hmm. who is now 14. Um, I remember taking, she had prescribed, I think, Ritalin or one of the kind of stimulants of like immediate release. And um, I remember me taking it. He was maybe about eight months old. And it was the first time I felt like my mind was able to just like be calm. Like I felt calm. I was able to take him on a walk and I didn't have anxiety. And I was like, like my mind was still. Like yeah. I was like, holy fuck. Like I was like, is this? Like, I couldn't even, like, I couldn't even comprehend it. I was like, is this normal? Like, I was like, holy shit. So it was like this mind-blowing thing, which again, like, I had been so used to, like, people talking about taking stimulants. Like, oh my God. Like, again, I went to Homestead. So, like, everybody that took stimulants was just, were just fucking abusing them, right? Right. Um, And so, again, I, again, the the paradoxical effect of, like, being like, wow, my thoughts are calm and I don't feel anxious. And I'm actually feeling, you know, I had more of a flat affect, actually, when I took stimulants. I was just like, "Hmm." like, right, and I could slow my stuff down. So that that diagnostic understanding came later on where the dyslexia stuff was like, Oh, and dyslexia runs rampant in my family. My mom has dyslexia. My uncle had dyslexia. My older sister has dyslexia. Again, it was like, well, duh. But again, I think because I, um, my personality was, uh, I think my personality was actually the thing that like kind of was distracting everybody from the learning disability. Sure. That makes sense. Like I was always like this kind of like bubbly kind of, da, da, da. so I was like distracting everybody from like kind of this thing that was going on of like some of my comprehension stuff. Like I remember again, being in math and being able to like, I would read like, um, word problems and I'm like, I can't 
fucking understand what they're saying in this word problem. Like, I could not comprehend it. Right. And again, I think if I had the right teachers or, again, some of those right resources to help me work through that, I would have been fine. But, again, I was just like, I don't know, fucking four ducks, and now three are gone. Like, I couldn't, my brain yeah. just could not process the information. So, again, now as an adult, I'm like, thank God I don't have to work out these word problems. But, <laughs> but you know, you just, you learn, you know. Uh, but now, again, now that I have my own children, it's like, you know, being able to kind of, step back and kind of see like, okay, where might some of their struggles be as I sure. see some of their educational things coming up. So yeah. yeah. Isn't that fun? We can, <laughs> Super we can, fun. We can talk about parenting too. It's my five-year-old definitely has ADHD. Um, <laughs> probably my two-year-old too. Um, so, okay. But that's, I'm going to back up a little bit. I always just kind of follow my own curiosity in your podcast. <laughs> so then uh, where does starting your own practice versus having kids fit together? Because oh. that's extra not extra, but like that, those are different things to balance that I think people don't always consider. Mm-hmm. Like we, we in our society separate work and personal life so much, but when you own your own practice, something like being a parent is a really big deal and trying to navigate being a business owner, starting a practice, running a practice, whatever, versus like having a toddler versus a teenager, are very separate mm-hmm. thing or very different things. Sure. So I'm crazy. And <laughs> I mean, literally, I think this is where, again, I'm kind of, like, appreciative for, I think, some of my ADD. I, I'm i able to kind of, like, diversify. I mean, my husband would probably disagree. He's probably like, but I literally was pregnant. I was pregnant walking across the stage with my undergrad. And sure. I was pregnant, walk, or I didn't even actually walk for my master's degree either yeah i was like fuck this shit i I didn't even (laughs) walk for my my high school diploma i didn't i didn't give a shit about any of that but i was pregnant with my undergrad i was pregnant with my master's in my gown so like to me it was like never a question like i was like of course i'm gonna do that like there was i know this sounds probably bad but it was like i didn't having children was never gonna be like oh i'm gonna pause this stuff to have kids it was just like it was going to happen Sure. It was going to happen in yeah. conjunction with each other. So it's been really hard. It's been really difficult. But at the same time, I feel like I wouldn't have it any different. Like, I'm so grateful that I had children really young. Like, mm-hmm. I had all three of my kids before I was 30. So, like, thank God I got it out of the way so I can kind of keep moving. <laughs> sure. um, again, that's uh, I know not everybody does that or can do that or whatever, and that's fine. But, like, yeah. this is just what has kind of unraveled in my life. And, like, I'm super grateful that it's kind of worked out that way. Yeah. I think that is one of the perks of, of ADHD is the more stimulation in your life, like the more mellow you are. Yeah. That's why we treat it with, with stimulants. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't take medication. Um, I never have, not that I'm wildly opposed to it. I'm opposed to medicating kids, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's one of those things where like, I'm very much self-medicating with caffeine, yeah. which is stimulant. <laughs> and so it's, it's one of those things, but also uh, managing it through mm-hmm. life choices. And so having a lot going on, yeah. I was teaching and coaching and doing therapy like, that's crazy. That's a recipe for burnout. But when you have ADHD, like, no, nah, I'm good because yeah. I have so many things going on. If I have too little going on in my life is when I go crazy, not too much. Well, and to your point, I mean, I think going back to the stimulant thing, like I, again, there's been pockets throughout the last, you know, 15 years that I'm like, okay, I'm going to go back on the med and try it for a little while. And I stop it because I don't like feeling like I, I, yeah. I've used it, I think as a, as a, I've used my ADHD or ADD to kind of propel me in life. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like I, I don't like how it actually makes me feel. I like not feeling like all the racing stuff going on, yeah. but at the same time too, I'm like, I get more shit done when I'm not on that. So I, I, yeah, I tend not to be on medication because I actually, I have functioned longer in my life with it than without it. Yeah. The ADD. Yeah. Same. And I, I, you know, and that's not to besmirch medication. And I think to for, each their own. <laughs> yes, for people who need it, it can certainly be life changing. But it, there is all, 
I don't know. I've been doing this for 15 years. I don't, I can't think of a case off the top of my head that there hasn't been any trade-off. Like the medication is always a cost benefit analysis. Mm -hmm. If you're in higher ed, you're in school, you're a student and you are struggling, like, yes, it can be life-saving. But like for us at this point in our careers, we have a job that's very flexible. Mm -hmm. We have a job that's highly stimulating, like probably don't need medication Mm -hmm. or there are things that you can adapt through, um, you know, organizing things in your life and diet, nutrition, exercise, like there are other things that you can do. We tend to be the only country that goes medication as a first option instead of kind of ruling out some other options first. And again, I I mean, I would identify like my practice being a more holistic practice. Like I have my certification in holistic health and like that kind of thing. So I do like to explore things that are more holistic and like how do you fix your actual lifestyle to work with what you're dealing with rather than just like med stuff. I think again, sometimes it's an interesting thing to explore it and be like, you know, again, for me to have that moment, be like, Holy shit, like this thing really has like, I think it's a good test, especially with like ADD and stuff like that. Just use a stimulant to test to see if, if is that really what's going on in your brain, right? That's a, a curious thing, but it doesn't mean that that's the only tool that you have. So right. yeah, exactly. Yeah, cool. Let's segue because you brought it up. Let's segue into some of your specialties because you've been doing this for a long time and have accumulated a bunch of them uh, in the classic ADHD fashion. Because <laughs> uh, I have that too. Mine are super disconnected. So I was like, and in case you didn't pick up, I'm also neurodivergent. Um, so yeah, let, let's talk about, um, you don't have to do all of them. What, what, are, what are some of the things that are um, kind of you're focusing with your clientele and your caseload currently? Uh, yeah, so the, like the holistic stuff is definitely, I really love to explore how like vitamins and nutrients and kind of like uh, that stuff really enhances like input output, right? Like, so, sure. you know, uh, I really value that. I like looking at people's nutrition as part of their health. Yeah. So I'm sort I, I would, I'm like sitting here, I'm like, okay, there's a certain letter like designation for it. It's like certified integrative mental health professional. Think that's what it is but to be honest with you i could be wrong on that but it's sure. cim i don't really give a fuck but there's something about that integrative yeah. mental health professional yeah um so i try to incorporate that somehow right like okay do you have enough fucking omega-3 like do you have enough vitamin d do we do we have some of these just fucking basic essentials in your system right. i think it's so important and not enough mental health professionals look at that like yeah. i think it's actually I, if I could encourage more mental health professionals to get more educated on that and integrate that in their practice, I would encourage them as much education as you can. Yeah. And I come at it from a totally different perspective, but land on the same place because I came from a sports background. And so that idea of your nutritional food as fuel mm-hmm. makes so much sense to me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then, then we have researched too, like, what was it? 2019, 2020, maybe where um, folic acid, which yeah. vitamin yes. B9. Yeah. Uh, has like a uh, reduces suicidal thinking by like forty four percent. Yes. Uh, like simple over the counter supplement. Yes. That people can get. You get it from your food, but most Americans don't have a healthy diet and they're lacking lots of nutrition and vitamins. So something like vitamin B nine or like vitamin D. We're in Wisconsin dealing with something like seasonal affective disorder. Like there are people who are need to take a thousand times what is recommended yeah, for like your 50, daily dose. Yeah, I use per week and it's like, yeah. Mm-hmm. And But that's because like they're so deficient mm-hmm. in it. And so again, like, yes, I, I wholeheartedly agree. And all these different kind of ways that you can get to that, looking mm-hmm. at it like, yeah, our bo- our brain is part of our body. Correct. And to separate it and say mental health is different than your physical health doesn't make any sense because what you put into your body is fueling your brain as well. Yeah. And I think, again, sometimes it's like, even if you can get your clients to yourself and your clients to, you know, just have awareness. It's like, okay, just for the next fucking week, write down what you eat. You know, do you wake up and you're, you know, 
you know, again, I am a caffeine addict too. So I'm like, how many cups of coffee have I had today? But like, you know, yeah, when's the last time you sat down and had a fucking piece of broccoli? You know, like that kind right. of stuff. It's like just awareness, I feel like is huge. So I try to really integrate that. That's kind of one of my like little passions. Sure. Um, I do EMDR. I mm-hmm. feel like that has been really, that was like a huge shift point in my practice is, you know, again, I went from like kind of more of, a, I, I wouldn't, ever all fucking therapists are trained in cbt but when i went from like more talk therapy to using emdr was this like very powerful tool yeah and i now use it and implement it in as much of my practice as i can and again i would say this won't be shocking but i don't use it in like the traditional emdr way like there's like these eight phases and this that and the other and like you use it in this very structured way not that that isn't used or i don't not that i don't use it ever but i use it in very a lot more of an organic way in my practice but so i do emdr i move reprocessing and desensitization if people don't know that EMDR stands for um but it's a really powerful tool um to kind of again especially for people that have like PTSD or have had like kind of traumatic events happen in their life um or people that don't love talking about their feelings and emotions like people that really have a hard time like accessing or verbalizing what they're experiencing I work a lot with men that are like you know first responders vets that kind of thing they they don't want to sit there and fucking talk about their emotions and stuff like that but it helps them access these kind of really traumatic things without necessarily talking about it can I um because I've had a lot of trauma specialists on because I work with religious trauma and um I'm curious kind of what got you interested in that. Was it being in the profession and seeing all these people who had trauma and being like, what the fuck am I supposed to do with this? Or was it something that you were like, how'd you get there? Because EMDR isn't something we learn in grad school. Mm -hmm. Um, Trauma in general isn't something we learn in grad school. I think a lot of people walk around. I did it early in my career thinking I was trauma informed and real. And like once I got into studying it, it's like, oh, I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. Yeah. Um, So it's something that's kind of like there's an awareness to it, but how to work with it. Um, we don't cover in, in any sort of depth in our training and as far as formal education for um, grad school mm-hmm. would be considered. So, yeah, it was something I wasn't like aware of at all. But when I worked at the county, the county was like, OK, I, we want to send a ther- you know a therapist and a caseworker to go get this EMDR training. And I was like, sure, again, AD, I'm like, what yeah. are we doing? How much, you, what, how much is it? You pay, you're paying for it? I'll <laughs> do that. Yeah. I was like, yeah, of course. Like, I was absolutely like, I'm bored for learning something new. Sure. So they sent me to the training nearby and I was, you know, learned about it. And I was like, this is fucking phenomenal. And then, of course, like I look back at all the people that I I'd had like again I, I went back in my mind I was like dude all these people that I worked with in chapter the chapter 980 program and all this stuff I'm like fuck right. all the people I would have like treated differently or you know whatever or I would have you know used this technique instead I was like Jesus and, you know like it, it, I really it totally informed my practice moving forward like yeah. completely fucking differently so really it, it just was like I think that was also the the shift in being like, I got to get the fuck out of here. Like, got to get the fuck out of the system because it really, like, again, insur- perfect example, insurance companies will only typically pay for a 50-minute session. EMDR, like, you need way more fucking time than 50 minutes to yeah. do EMDR. So it was kind of this thing. I was like, I can't use this tool in a 50-minute session. Like, so again, it was like this, everything started, like, shifting once I got trained in it. And yeah. I think I got trained in 2016. Um, so that was kind of the first rumblings inside of me of like all right you know and then of course then my brain like exploded of like okay yeah okay we're getting into you know subconscious processing and like all this the body holds the score all that kind of stuff and like mm-hmm. oh like and again i'm a cerebral person i'm a thinker so again i was like oh how the fuck do i get out of my head right like yeah. so 
that was that was kind of like that's the main one I got trained in. And then I don't know yeah. if you, where you want to go. <laughs> yeah, uh, I do want to go someplace. Uh, no, <laughs> I can see your face. No, no, you've recently added. But I do want to take a, a pause to just say like yes. Um, one, I think when you're actually trauma informed, it's so hard to look at a case and not see the trauma, um, because I've written about this somewhat extensively. Um, that like everyone has trauma. Mm-hmm. And there's big T trauma and little t trauma, big T being kind of what we think of as PTSD. Those mm-hmm. are people, first responders are, are a classic example that I use as well. Mm-hmm. Like um, people who have gone to war, people who have seen, you know, these horrific things, like our body processes that as well as our brain processing mm-hmm. that. So in order to work through those things, we need something that responds to both your brain and your body. Um, but even like, oh, I look at the couples I worked with early in my career, because I'm a marriage therapist, it's like, man, there's so much trauma in there. Mm-hmm. And like by not responding to it, mm-hmm. I could give them all these skills and all these tools, but like spinning wheels because if we're not addressing the trauma, it doesn't work. So it's it's wonderful. And also, yes, like maddening as a therapist to look back and be like, what was I doing? You missed so much, yeah. I it, And some of that's systemic because like you early in your career working with, with you know, something like um, sexual assault, like that's this wildly complex mm-hmm highly intense topic Mm -hmm. my internship is at a homeless shelter i'm doing like mindfulness stuff which Mm -hmm. like is wonderful i speak very highly of mindfulness and absolutely not what the people who are at the homeless shelter needed from me well okay so two things on that so yeah the the that first internship it was working with the offenders right it was working with the offenders and again everyone's like how could you work with the offenders i'm like again you listen to their stories and you always found out 98 percent of the time they were sexually you know, they yes. were perpetrated again. It and again, it, right? You follow the trauma. You follow the tra- Everybody has it. And so yeah. I think, too, one of the things that I've tried to use in my practice more, instead of using the word trauma, I use the word impact, right? Like, everybody's been impacted. And I love the, in somatic work, they they talk about, like, you're like a ball of dough, right? And, like, everybody gets needed. And this was needed. And this was needed. And this was needed. And so yeah. it's impact, impact, impact. And then you have this fucked up ball of dough, right? It's like, you're, right. it's like all of us have been needed into this loaf right yeah and then you put it in the oven you're like what's gonna come out right and so again it's like this visual of like man we've all fucking been impacted and and sometimes you have to take the the word trauma out of it i think sometimes because either either people look at it and they're like oh you weren't really traumatized you know i was traumatized you weren't traumatized like i was traumatized but we've all been fucking impacted by the things that have happened in our life right we were all of our dough has been fucked up in some way yeah so yes and i i think yeah i talk about this with a lot of the guests that i have on like Putting therapists who do not have the skills or tools in these high uh, intensity situations leads to burnout. Yeah. And also, like, oddly leads to underserved populations Mm -hmm. because us therapists who have been doing in the game for a long time aren't seeing those high intensity populations Mm -hmm. because, like, the system isn't set up to have any resources for them. Mm -hmm. Um, So for us as as practitioners to pay our bills, we're not taking the low level insurance. I don't take insurance at all. So it's like, it's, it's these things where it's like, I'm aware there's a need. And also the way our society has just decided, well, like, oh, they're homeless and poor, so they don't get resources or we'll send them an intern who has no training Mm -hmm. to be able to help them with things like trauma. Yeah. Um, I also tend to um, get on this uh, soapbox every once in a while, but like, uh, and it's not something I worked with a ton, but as a family therapist seeing a lot of uh, situations of abuse like right it's an uncomfortable reality mm-hmm. for a lot of people because we want the black and white thinking of people who hurt people are bad people yeah um but the reality of like most perpetrators are victims themselves like how do you support victims mm-hmm. and be against perpetrators when most perpetrators are victims mm-hmm. so yeah. it's 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 
messy like it definitely moves things into a gray area instead of what people want for like a a very black and white like bad people do bad things and they go to jail like that's not at all how the system works no and you're right I mean I think that's where so many people were like oh I can't believe you did that but it's like I think if I wouldn't have had that experience working with the sex offenders like I think I emerged from that like being able to be able to sit with anyone and have compassion like I I always say to people like (laughs) when when clients have shared things with me and they're they're full of shame and they're like oh here's my shame and I like literally can look at them and I'm like they, they can tell like I have compassion I have no yeah. judgment and they're like you're not you're not upset about this or you're you're not judging me and I'm like again in the back of my head I'm like I've worked with the these folks like right. I, I don't have to judge you right yeah and they can sense that like there's an authenticity about that I'm like I don't have to judge you like yeah. that's not my job here it's unconditional positive regard right yes. so well I, and it's a normal Tuesday for us for the most part <laughs> like most I think your shame I think clients can't hold on to these things thinking they're so big and bad mm-hmm. and like for us especially when you've been in, in doing therapy for a long time like we've heard it like for I don't know probably five six years into the profession mm-hmm. I was already telling people like you can't tell me something I haven't heard of already <laughs> that that but I also think like the work that I I feel like I'm I've I've done myself and the work I continue to do with myself is sitting with my own shame right sitting with my own shame and working through the stuff that comes up in me right like I mean again as therapists we're still human we're still yeah. human dealing with our own human experience and right. um again it kind of reminds me of that religious the religious trauma stuff like I've grown up in the you know born again Christian community in the Wells community Lutheran Wells community and I, I felt like one of the things that molded my dough was like original sin you are sinful from birth and I was like fuck I'm bad I've grown up with shame my entire life yeah. and having to bring that to myself all the time be like oh my god I'm full of shame so the work I have to continue to do with myself is I think present in in authentic in my relationship with my clients so yeah for sure and I think again that that unconditional positive regard like it's it's a space I think we professionally hold but like there's effort in it as well like there's there's work that we do as professionals to be able to hold that space for Mm -hmm. clients it doesn't just like magically happen but it's also hard to explain to clients because I think when you're not used to occupying that space it seems very foreign yes and we're used to occupying that space Mm -hmm. so like it's a thing that that's practice there's effort there's work that goes into it there's work to maintain it because certainly therapists burn out I think current research says more therapists are leaving the profession than coming into the profession so like we don't do a great job overall maybe as of self-care but like trauma informs but the, a lot of the guests i've had on the podcast who work with trauma like no mm-hmm. secondary trauma we're taking things in as therapists yeah. and we need to work on it as well um where i want to shift uh is one of your new things um because you are um certified to do ketamine assisted therapy yeah actually it's a perfect segue because i one of the things that i um really want to try to start working on in regards to utilizing ketamine. So the, again, meandering thing of ketamine at first, when I like heard about using, utilizing ketamine in, in therapy or in a clinical setting, I was like, what the fuck? Like I, what I remember from ketamine when I was like in high school was like K holes and like, yeah. you know, that kind of stuff. I'm like, special oh, K. Special K. Yeah. Drugs. Yeah. Like uh, some of my friends were into special K and Homestead. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Homestead. Exactly. <laughs> That's a geography joke for people who maybe aren't from the Wisconsin <laughs> area. Because Mequon is maybe 10 minutes outside of Milwaukee, but it is a much more affluent uh, uh, part of town. And uh, Homestead's a huge school, so I'm not saying everybody who goes there is affluent, but I'm saying it's it's a different vibe than being in uh, Milwaukee proper, even <laughs> though it's 10, 12, 15 minutes away. 
Yeah. Uh, nice cars, lots of drugs. <laughs> <laughs> and, and yes, there's there's some reputational things about, you know, maybe the inner city kids are smoking weed and the uh, kids out in Mequon and some of the surrounding areas are doing much more designer drugs because they have money. So, so yeah, when I had heard that people were using ketamine as mm-hmm. um, a, in a clinical setting, I was like, what the? serious fuck. Um, but then I started to kind of educating myself on it. And then it was like one of those things where it's like, it happened, like synchronicity where like, you're hearing it there. And then I heard it from here and then I heard it and you're just, it's here, you're hearing it pop up. And then I was like, Oh, now I'm curious. Now I want to start educating myself on this, like whatever. Um, so really ketamine is a dissociative anesthetic that they use, like, you know, again, to kind of put yourself under, or people use it in like surgical settings to like, um, before you go into surgery and stuff like that. But what they're finding clinically speaking is that it's really good for people with like depression, PTSD, um, suicidality and, and stuff. And it, it basically causes your plain brain to go in a neuroplastic state. Mm-hmm. Right. So when used properly, when used in a clinical setting, you can kind of get a person to kind of go in this, it's like a liminal space basically where your brain kind of, um, kind of goes in a dreamlike state and you can kind of traject yourself out of depression pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. But when you pair it with therapy and you pair it with like prep session. So the way I do it in practice is we kind of prep a client, right? Again, the appropriate client, because <laughs> right. there's, there's a lot of appropriateness to it. And you prep a client um, to do like set intentions and, and such like that. And then you utilize the ketamine. And then we do something called integration sessions where you're taking the information that came out of the ketamine journey and you're integrating it then afterwards. And I like to use actually EMDR and stuff like that afterwards sure. to integrate that information thereafter. It can be a really effective kind of treatment plan. Um, so what I am really excited about using it for, again, I kind of said, like, I work with, like, first responders, police officers, veterans, and stuff like that, is you're finding people able to work through some of that trauma stuff, which is, like, huge for some of these populations. And what I get really excited about is using it with therapists that have vicarious trauma. Therapists that are, like, again, they're sitting in office all day long hearing this stuff, and they don't know how to release it, right? Like, we're kind of our worst... our I don't know, our worst enemies in a sense, like we're sitting there, we're taking it all in and we don't know how to release it. Like I was, we were talking before this, but like I was just at a conference and a lot of it was talking about like, we're sitting there all day and we talk all the time about self-care, but like we're not coming up with any new ways of self-care. It's just like, oh yeah, go take a walk between between clients or, right. you know, go do some breathing techniques between clients, but we're not actually like releasing all that energy. Mm-hmm. So ketamine has actually been a really effective tool of like, how do you actually take all that heaviness that we've all been carrying and like, how do you actually release it and like transmute it in a sense, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, one of the things that's that's fascinating is because I'm I'm coming from a religious trauma perspective, and psychedelics um, are very exciting in the mm-hmm. religious trauma and and just trauma in general because some of the the response, the brain chemistry changes, and some of the things that get um, unlocked or opened up or pathways that are available to the brain yeah. when it is in an altered state. Yeah. And so, you know, that that dissociative effect of um, Ketamine is what's helpful. Why it happens in a clinical setting is different than what somebody who's going to see, you know, an underground punk <laughs> indie rock show in, in Brooklyn is using ketamine for. Like, those are different things. So the clinical setting is different, but it, it creates space 
where the normal brain patterns aren't happening, that's not firing automatically. Correct. So what they, they noticed, I mean, yes, you're going into these non-ordinary states of consciousness. And what they're finding with ketamine is it's like basically the part of your brain that feels very helpless, right? Like you're, you're let's say you're, you have depression and you're just like, you have this like learned helplessness feeling or sensation or hopelessness that when you're going into this journey state with the ketamine or any kind of, I'd say most psychedelics, you're coming out of it and that learned helplessness part of your brain is being blocked. Mm -hmm. And that, again, for somebody who's been struggling with that helpless feeling, for that to go away for a while, holy shit, how powerful that is, right? Yeah. Or, you know, again, you know, I've done, I've gone through my own ketamine journeys now because, again, it's kind of recommended for people. Same with EMDR. When you're trained in EMDR, they want you to have your own EMDR experience. So you can kind of inform your clients, like, this is some, these are some things you can maybe expect out of this journey. Right, for um, sure. I remember my first ketamine journey, it was like, I emerged out of that experience with a level of gratitude I have not felt in fucking 10 years, mm -hmm. right? Like, it's like, I, I could, I can, I've accomplished a lot in my life. I've had a lot of success. I've had a lot of like things that like logically and cere cerebrally, I know, like, I'm like, wow, I'm really grateful for this. But the feeling and the sensation of gratitude had been missing for a really long time. It was like, I couldn't access it. But then after the ketamine experience, I was like, oh my God, I can feel it again in my, my actual body. Does yeah. that make sense? So it was like, I almost was like, I needed to like touch it again in, yeah. this, in a way. Um, so again, it was really powerful and it was like that lasted for quite a long period of time after that journey. And it was yeah. like something my brain needed to remember again. Yeah. So again, th that, that was kind of like a really cool experience. Yeah. And it's fascinating again with something like trauma where, um, your brain goes into survival mode and it starts blocking some of the communication that's coming from your body. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and then people get in the, the habit of intellectualizing, uh, which therapists definitely do, <laughs> um, where they're they're not only are they their brains blocking what their body's telling them, but they're not they're thinking, so they're just feeding their brain yeah. and totally ignoring the the body aspect of it. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really huge. Um, I do think therapists, because I work with a lot of uh, mental health and and medical professionals as well, mm -hmm. we do this weird thing where like because we talk about it, we check it as a box without doing it. Yeah. And so like oh, if I talked about self care, like that's good, but like forgetting to do it. Yeah. And then I also talk about a lot like self-care is the bare minimum. So like self-care is not the goal. Self-care isn't the end of the journey. Self-care is the minimum to be functional. Yeah. Like where are you having joy? Like what are your lifestyle choices that are healthy for you and enriching for you? Because if we're just going like, oh, this keeps me barely functional. Mm -hmm. I do yoga once a week and that helps. Yeah. Like you're going to burn out at some point. You're not going to stay in the profession and you're not going to be doing great work for your clients. Correct. I, I talk about this all the time with clients and just peers and stuff like that. Like so many people, I call this my con artist thread. <laughs> so many people are con artists to themselves. They lie to themselves about what their authentic self actually wants, right? Or what actually feels fulfilling to them. So, so many people are like, yeah, I walk every day and I drink this water and it's, but it's all bullshit. It's like, I mean, not that those things aren't good for you, but it's not truly fulfilling to their authentic self. And so I think the way to get to your authentic self is being honest with yourself, right? It's like, those things are not that fulfilling to you. Like yeah. you do them because you're supposed to. It's, it's in a system. And um, yeah, going back to that conference, like so many people were like, yeah, talking this game, but it was like, does that really fulfill you though? Like, I don't know, like I can do yoga, but it doesn't feel that fulfilling to me, right? Or yeah. whatever it is, you right. know, if it fulfills you, cool, but yes, yeah. not throwing shade at yoga. I recommend yeah. it. Oh, I love it. I do. I do. <laughs> but it, yeah, to be, you have to really get so honest with yourself. And that is the part that like so many of us just lie to ourselves about what is actually fulfilling. Yeah. And then I think um, to, to explain some of the jargon, which most people listen to podcasts are therapists, but um, 
the the neuroplasticity yeah um again our brains the analogy i use is like if you go into your backyard um assuming you have grass in your backyard and we're in the midwest so (laughs) everybody has that um and you walk the same path every night you're going to kill the grass there Mm -hmm. like you're going to wear a path down and that's what happens in our brain with our neural pathways the electricity runs the same pathways they get very well worn Mm -hmm. it goes quicker so our brain which is this incredibly powerful supercomputer that's super lazy just takes the easy route and what happens with psychedelics in general is all these different neural pathways open up and your brain is free to take them mm-hmm. at the same uh, frequency that the well-worn pathways would be. So it just opens up a lot of things. Yeah. When we see somebody who uses psilocybin, for example, the way that their brain lights up on an fMRI like while they're tripping is insane. And yeah. there's so much brain activity that's going on versus when you're totally fully conscious in an unaltered state that like these parts of your brain's never light yeah. up. Your brain's like, oh, yeah, like, I forgot about that part. Oh, yeah, I forgot. Like, this is where, too, like, the EMDR, I also do hypnotherapy, which, again, is so specific. I did. Before we started recording, I threw a little bit of shade at it. Uh, but this is the way I look at it. EMDR, hypnotherapy, u- utilizing the ketamine, and, and I say this to my clients, these are just tools, just right. fucking tools, right? Like, we don't need to use them. We can use them, whatever. But they all access subconscious parts of us, right? They're all getting us to a place where we get to take our ego and move the ego out of the way. Because our ego, again, we all have an ego. We're all going to, it's all there, right? It's protective of us. But it, we need opportunities to move our ego out of the way to get to deeper parts of self. Um, and those deeper parts of ourselves hold really important information. So I think sometimes when our clients like realize it or you know, even ourselves, I'm like, God, if I could just get rid of my ego for just a fucking second sometimes, right? And again, that that's where, too, some of us really intellectualize us cerebral people mm-hmm. to get rid of it for just a little bit. It's like, oh, like yeah. thank you so much. And, yeah. you know, it accesses this deeper inner healer in us. Yes, and not to shamelessly plug my podcast on my podcast, <laughs> but I had uh, Anne Hottership, who's a, a certified sex educator, on to talk about um why the love languages author was homophobic, but um, we talk about other things too and sex education, but she does dream work. And that's, that's yes. something too, where like, you know, some of the things from like um, Freud and young and all those people, like I side eye it. I talk very openly about Freud being a terrible person for our profession. Um, even though he's considered the father of, of psychotherapy mm-hmm. um, that like those things are lacking scientific backing. And so, so even something like hypnotherapy or dream work, I, I side eye it because I'm, I think there are people who abuse it sure. or who take advantage of it because it is unregulated in the way that life coaches are unregulated. Sure. So like seeing someone who is a licensed therapist, mm-hmm. there's accountability there that isn't there for life coaches. Not that like hypnotherapy doesn't work or isn't helpful to sure. some people, but but it's that um, I think as a consumer, they are required to be so much more savvy sure. in selecting some of those things because you will get the the same with like something like tarot because I identify as atheopagan. So like some of the paganism mm-hmm. spaces and wellness spaces, crystals and all that stuff, like mm-hmm. there's snake oil salesmen in there. So sure. it's, it's not that these tools, as you're saying, don't work or can't help people. It's just that I think the consumer has to be so much more savvy. Correct. Well, and I think, again, even with, let's go back to the ketamine thing. Like, anybody, like, there are what I would call, like, pump and dump ketamine places, right? Oh, you, you go in, get it online, yeah, too. Yeah, you go in, you get the ketamine, you walk the fuck out. I mean, this is why, too, like, we try to, I mean, at least where I'm doing it, right? We're, we're going in, we're prepping, we're setting intention, we're doing the journey. You're coming back, you're doing integration. You need to, there, there needs to be some boxes, there needs to be... Right. Like there needs to be the appropriate regulation for it. There needs to be, I always say like you have to do everything with intention, especially in this kind of work. Right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you're right. I mean, the same with hypnotherapy, right? Like I do, I, I think there, there are some, there are some, there, but that's like that in every 
every yes. line of work. There are going to be some wackadoos and there's going to be some <laughs> like real people that want to do the good work, right? So right. I think, yeah, you have to be a mindful consumer, um, but that's in any setting, I think. Yeah, and right. Uh, people who are doing DBT, which I love, um, mm -hmm. can also do it poorly and yeah. be harmful for their client. So like, right, there is no um, hard and fast rule of it. I think there are certain things that attract uh, the snake oil salesman or the mm -hmm. con artists mm -hmm. more because it's dysregulated. Sure. Um, but again, that the profession gets better. And so it's one of those like paradoxical things where we're talking about ketamine and both of us are super excited about it. And like, you got your certification. I'm looking at getting my certification. Like the, the science is catching up yeah. to the way that it's working for clients. Um, but it's paradoxical because people will look at it and say like, oh, well that because they learned the propaganda or they heard about street drugs or whatever. And so they're like seeing this disconnect between the profession, but really it is kind of going about it with what's the research say, what are the back, what's backing up. So it's not just anecdotal of like, my clients went on a three day retreat and did mushrooms and mm -hmm. came back and their depression was like, that's not what's happening. Yeah, no, I mean, that could be happening for some folks, but that's not, the, that's not the research that, that I think is, is showing right now right. with some of the stuff. And I think too, like the, there is, there is still so much yet left to like explore in this realm with psychedelics and ketamine yeah. and everything. So, but it is, it's been very interesting seeing it in practice right now, just like some of the clients that like really truly like have, they've tried the SSRIs, they've tried some of this other stuff. They've tried to like release some of these, like, old narratives and they haven't been able to release them in the ketamine has really like kind of trajected them out of like some of these old like clung to narratives and I'm like yeah. wow that's pretty powerful you know even one of my clients in particular they've tried the EMDR they've tried some of these other things and um the ketamine really has kind of like their that neuroplastic state has like pushed them out of that and I'm like wow that is really cool for them and yeah. I'm happy for them yeah and it's it's fascinating and and I don't know the the research on ketamine as well as I know the research on on psilocybin but it's it's fascinating to see something like PTSD which tends to be a much more chronic um, type issue or um, treatment resistant depression, which is, you know, people have tried a lot of different options yeah. and nothing's really stuck. Like the results that are happening with those populations is, yeah. is exciting. Yeah. I would say is where the research is at. They're still working through what does time frame look like and how long does the benefit last? But like, those are things where it's like, we're, we're pretty confident reducing the risk. It's not doing harm to clients. Mm -hmm. If it's being used properly, it's just like, what are the long term? benefits of it what does that look like for a treatment modality of do you come back every six months or yeah. whatever so some of that stuff still being i think honed in you know uw madison is one of the big research institutions yeah. uh, excuse me uh for psilocybin right now so like lots of exciting things yeah. there and the the reason these things have the bad reputation was because of bad science Correct. like it was all for political reasons and the war on drugs and it gets back to some racism um Good job, America. But it's it's <laughs> it, when we when we look at like right what a lot of us grew up on. Like I use my example my example I use a lot is my parents aren't neither of my parents are organ donors and it drives me crazy. But they were raised in a generation of propaganda that they are going to take your organs before you're really dead. Mm -hmm. And so like my mom has this irrational fear around like well they're gonna they're gonna harvest my organs before I'm really dead and then what if I could be saved and then I can't because they took my kidneys and I'm like that's not how it works. But like again, some of these, some of the propaganda happens at this formative age where it's hard to work some of it out. Um, that dough, I, that dough. Is yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, but yeah, uh, the same that I use that example as kind of a, an approachable metaphor for people who maybe are hung up on like, ooh, but drugs, or I heard about this person who lost their mind on LSD or yeah. whatever, and it's like, right, we're not. This isn't some random dose that we're slipping in someone's coffee every morning, like Pink Floyd. And I love Pink Floyd; they didn't do drugs. That's what happened to their their lead singer who wasn't with the band anymore but um 
But it's one of those things where it's like, right, there's a methodical approach to this that's science backed, it's research backed. It's not just, and there are, there are, you know, the, I forget what it is, uh, but there's one where you just order your ketamine online and it Mind comes to your house yeah. and you do it by yourself. And like, I, I don't know, I have issues with that. I think yeah. that's, that's so hard. It, it probably helps some people, sure. which is why I can exist as a business, but um, the risk just goes so much higher. Whereas if you're working with a professional in a one-on-one setting and they're really tailoring their approach to what you're needing. I think it goes back down to any of these things, any of these tools, like like literally name any tool in the therapeutic realm, it all comes back down to the therapeutic relationship, right? right. Like, so again, and I, I supervise two um, women and two therapists and they, I always say that to them. They're like, well, what can I do with this? Whenever we do supervision, they're like, well, what should I do here? And how should I do this here? What, what technique can I use here? I'm like, go back to the therapy. I can tell you 10 techniques you can use here in the next session with your client. But come back to your therapeutic relationship, like you said. Like so, again, we we're we're trying to use these tools to help our clients. And at the end of the day, if you're have a strong enough therapeutic relationship with them, that tool will be pretty effective, right? right? So yep. that's where I too. I'm like I I've been really trying to be mindful of like even to like the ketamine I would not use with all my clients, right? Like it's mm-hmm. it's very specific to which ones I would even offer it to, or the people that are inquiring about it now. I'm like, okay, like we would have to still see if you're a first. You know, right? I'm not going to just start doing ketamine on you. We have to right. develop this therapeutic safety and alliance and right. stuff. So I, I think that's where too. It's like, yeah, these are great things, but yeah, just giving you ketamine and then being like, good, like hope your journey goes well. Yeah, it's like, yeah, it's it's really about tailoring it. So yeah, and that and it, as, like you said, this is true of anything. Like I use breathing techniques as a good example from before I was trauma informed to when after I was trauma informed. Like there's really good research in science that breathing techniques help people. Yes, but if somebody's trauma involved them holding their breath. <laughs> If they grew up with a parent who was abusive and everything they do is tense and hold, like breathing technique is going to trigger them. And so you're not going to work through their trauma. You can't do the somatic work with a breathing technique Mm -hmm. for a client who's triggered by that. Mm -hmm. So like it is even something like a a breathing technique, which almost universally benefits people. We have to be aware of what's going on in our clients specifically because Mm -hmm. there are people who that won't work well for. Exactly. Yeah. So it's fascinating stuff. I know. Um, you want to talk about the the groups? Should we talk about rogue rogue therapy? Yeah, I mean that 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 was kind of like one of those things too. Is like a, in private practice, like I and probably my ADD, right? It's like, uh, hey, let's try it. Let's try something. Let's try something new. Let's try something unique. And it's one of those things where it's like you try and see like what happens with it. So, mm-hmm. um, we actually like paired up. So the way my private practice is is like I have a private practice and it's my own little like thing. But then I like rent space out to like a bunch of other therapists and it's kind of a collective. Sure. Um, my invi- like my vision of it was always that like because again a lot of us who are in private practice we're, we are we're kind of on this island and we're like like I you know we're kind of alone right and so it was my dream to like always have like a bunch of other providers that I, like we could shoot the shit and we could like walk down the hallway and be like hey what's going on today and like not feel so alone. Yeah. Um. So we had kind of like all got together and. Um, we're like let's let's promote this like series of like women empowerment and mm-hmm. and that kind of thing and like whatever our little passions are we'll each month we'll do like a little thing based upon something we really find passionate so each month we picked like somebody is doing yoga and somebody was doing burnout and somebody was you know I did like unconscious processing and like you know whatever so we picked one each month and we provided like a little workshop for women to come to so again it was kind of like one of these things like we had no idea if it was going to be successful or not successful but we were just like putting ourselves out there to just like 
try to create some community with women. Right. Um, some of them have been great and they've been really successful. And then sometimes it's like fucking crickets and nobody signs up. Yeah. So again, it's one of those things I think, again, as a private practice owner, as a small business, uh, you know, owner, entrepreneur, whatever, you just have to like try things. I think it's kind of like, I guess I don't look at any of it as like a failure. Sure. Like even though some of them have been flops, like and nobody signed up for them. Yeah. Um, and some of them have been great, been great, but I'm like, just try shit. Like, I don't know, like, yeah. cause sometimes people leave and they're like, that was so amazing. And I really got a lot out of it. And I remember having one woman come up to me afterwards and she's like, I was so anxious for coming, but I'm so glad I came. And uh -huh. that was like, again, my heart like swelled. I was like, Oh my God. Like, even if just one person got something out of this experience and she fought through her anxiety, like that meant something to me. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so it was, it's been kind of an exciting, it was like, kind of, it's been like a year long workshop in a sense sure. um but yeah it, it's kind of like my little it was like a little thing but we've all been a part of it so yeah yeah which is awesome and, and i love stuff like that and that's why i wanted to, to highlight it and promote it because i do i i get i feel that on such a deep level of there are things we try as as practitioners because it sounds like such a great idea <laughs> and i will say we often get really positive feedback from other people in the field mm -hmm. so like one of the things that uh, i got my certification in religious trauma um specializing in it and um almost nobody was doing stuff for purity culture so people who are raised in like don't have sex before marriage and if you do have sex you're gonna uh get an std or get pregnant and like all this this horrific um bad stuff about purity culture and conservative christianity all that stuff's geared towards women. Mm. And so I heard from all these other religious trauma therapists of like, oh, like you're interested in doing a men's group. That's such a good idea. Go do that. Go do that. Go do that. And finally, like, it's like, all right, fine. I'll do this group. I don't like doing groups, but I was like, fine. Nobody else is doing it. I'll do it. I have a specialty, whatever. One person signed up. <laughs> and so I was like, it, yeah. it's, it's a weird thing where like a lot of us in the profession, I think, are looking at it from a professional stance of like, mm -hmm. that's great. We should get that information yeah. out to clients. It's helpful. And it's, it's not at all how clients are thinking about it. Even like marketing something like religious trauma has been weird because very few people identify as having religious trauma. Like that's not what they come into the door with. So yes, it's, it's awesome. And like this um, stuff for females, safe spaces for them and women's empowerment, like that's awesome. And also like, it's so weird. And some of these things will your market it and it'll be a great idea. And right, no one signs yeah. up. And so, yeah, sometimes too, it's like, anal like get, not trying to get in your analytical brain, but like, why did this, but we do, you sit there and you're like, okay, was it because it was this one, nobody signed up because like they didn't, like one of them in particular was like in July, let's say, and it was masculine and feminine energy, right? Mm -hmm. Like, how does it manifest? Blah, blah, blah. And like me and my, the partner of mine, we were super excited. Her and I were like, so excited to do it. We're like, oh yeah, this is gonna be so good. We prepared it all. And then like, nobody signed up and we're like, why was it? Is it okay? We're in Port Washington. It's kind of, you know, like small community, not a lot of, you know, people might not sign up for it. It was in the middle of July or it was summertime. Maybe right. So there was a lot of this like analysis of why. Um, and then you have to kind of just like let it go and you're like, oh, fuck it. <laughs> Yeah. And we're not yeah. going to sit here anymore and think and that, about it. that happens too with like building things. I, I do a lot of content creation. Um, and so it's like, right, there's so many analytics and stuff out there that like don't mean anything. Yeah. But like, I, at least for me, the psychology brain kicks in on like the numbers and the research. Like that sounds fascinating mm -hmm. for me, but also like, yeah, it's fucking TikTok. Like it's dumb. Don't yeah. like define your success over whether something goes viral or not. Like that can't be the way we're defining success. Thankfully, again, my my brain just kind of like moves on from it. I'm like, oh, don't care. Next thing, boom, and I'm I'm on to the next thing that is rewarding and fulfilling for me. So yes, um, awesome. Well, this has been fantastic, Laura. If people want to learn more about your practice or work with you or find your stuff, where can they go to to find more about you? Uh, my main website is www.navigatewhg.com. So Navigate Wellness Health Group. 
Um, yeah, so they can check out stuff there. Um, there's lots of stuff going on all the time and projects that we're working on and all that jazz. Yes. Um, and you're on Instagram, so we'll tag you on there as well. Um, and all those those links and stuff will be in the show notes. Perfect. So thanks for coming on. It's Thank been you awesome. For me. And to all our wonderful listeners out there, thanks for tuning in again. We will be back with a new episode next week. Take care, everyone. <laughs>